Welcome to the Remote Warfare Programme podcast. In this episode, we have a recording of a panel from the Conceptualising Remote Warfare Conference, which the Remote Warfare Programme held in collaboration with the University of Kent on the 28th of February and 1st of March. The conference pulled together a wide range of experts from the military, government, academia and civil society to discuss the past, present and future of remote warfare as well as the implications of this approach. We couldn't have organised a conference without the support of the Conflict Analysis User Centre at the University of Kent and the British International Studies Association. If you like what you hear at this podcast, you can hear more panels in our upcoming episodes and you can read more depth in more depth about the topics in our upcoming book released in early 2020. For now, enjoy the podcast. Okay, so we will begin today's panel with a very able body of experts who will start to discuss some of the theoretical questions around remote warfare. Um, so we have Dr. Yola Dremers and Dr. Lauren Gold from the University of Utrecht. We have Dr. Anise Van England from Cranfield University, Professor Paul Schultz from the University of Birmingham and King's College London, and Dr. Tom Watts from the Royal Holloway. Each speaker will talk for about 12 minutes. I'll furiously wave after about three, and then we'll open up the Q&A once everyone has spoken. So first, let's start with Yola and Lauren. I'll try and set up your PowerPoint. Okay, thanks a lot for inviting us and for being here at, uh, at Kent um, and, um, and starting this hopefully very fruitful and interesting conference. Uh, my name is Jura Demers and together with Lauren Gould, um, um, I'll, I'll, I'll give the first presentation. So when in December 2017, um, we, Lauren and I, are, organized a conference on the intimacies of remote warfare at Utrecht University, uh, to try and make sense of how in the background of spectacular wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, an expanding conglomerate of armed actors um, was engaged in, in targeted killings, training operations and manhunts outside conventional war zones. Um, it still was pretty hard to find experts to come and join us for the, for the conference. Uh, and it's wonderful to see that only one and a half year later, we have such a full house and such a full program. We flew in, uh, uh, Mark Duffield and Derek Gregory and, and Abigail was there one and a half years ago, uh, Chris Woods, but it's, it's wonderful to see that this is such a vibrant and growing field. So I'm happy to begin the first session um, with an introduction, sort of introductory conceptualization of remote warfare, uh, drawing attention to the temporal and spatial reconfiguration of war and the notion of liquid warfare particularly. So this comes out of research that Lauren and I did uh, on the U.S. Africa Command. Uh, and I'm not, not going to talk about that research. It was published in Security Dialogue uh, last October. Uh, but a lot of what I say is, is coming out of, of that research in how US, uh, uh, the U.S. African Command managed to uh, set up these operational capabilities all throughout Africa, uh, which is something that we have coined liquid warfare. So, but first about remote warfare. I think uh, Rubrik and Tom gave us a very good working and starting working definition of remote warfare um, as, as operations um, that mark a shift away from boots on the ground deployments toward light footprint, military interventions, 
which involve a combination of drone strikes and airstrikes, special forces, and private contractors and, and military to military and military to militia partnerships, and, and how a lot of these partners are actually doing the killing and the dying in the theaters of war. Largely, these military interventions and their lived realities remain hidden from Western publics. And if they incidentally appear on our screens, the shadowy mix of alliances and actors makes it very hard to trace lines of responsibilities and power constellations and strategic choices underlying these. So this elusiveness is problematic for a number of reasons. For one, because larger audiences are effectively um, confused into indifference, and also importantly, because uh, those at the receiving end of the violence have no way to, to, to hold governments accountable. So what we see is that war is rendered invisible and unaccounted for. So aiming to define this new newness of interventionist warfare, scholars have entered into something of a coining contest. Oh, this is the definition of vegan and what's. Um, but we noticed some sort of a coining contest on how to name this, this transformation, this shift, this shift in the nature of, of warfare. So we came to a long list of network wars or global civil wars, securocratic wars, coalition proxy warfare, transnational shadow wars, surrogate warfare, vicarious warfare. Um, and what we noticed in reviewing this debate uh, is how the newness of war is attributed to, to at least three developments. So there's sort of three genres to the answers to the question of why do we see this, this transformation in the, in the nature of, of uh, warfare. So why do we see this turn to remote interventionisms? So the first genre um, looks at or, or answers that this is all because uh, after the horrors of ground wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, we see uh, a shift to, uh, to um, risk aversion, war fatigue, ushering in a post-interventionist or a pullback era. So the US and its coalition partners, but also Russia, Saudi Arabia, combined a resort to uh, precision airstrikes uh, with a shift to smaller clandestine and more focused interventions. So it is because of risk aversion and war fatigue. The second genre of answers to the question of why do we see remote interventionism is very much focusing on how matter matters uh, and, and very much looks at um, how remote technology and technology in itself, military robotics and drones in particular, makes this new way of war possible. So um, technology is seen as a key feature. And then we see this, this sort of new field popping up of drone studies uh, a lot of publications around drones, necro, ethics, the grueling irony of killing with care. Uh, and what is often implied by these debates that somehow it are these new technologies that are the drivers between, uh, behind this new form of warfare. The third genre of answers is a little bit more elaborate um, and looks at the networked nature of war. So since the enemies of the state are now operating through shadowy networks and cells, the state itself has to resort to similar tactics. Elements within the US military and related agencies legitimated and legalized by the war on terror have increasingly adopted new and networked forms of organization. 
which has made possible the integration of drones and new technologies into these so-called counter-network wars, very much coming out of, of Stanley McChrystal's uh, uh, idea of it takes a network to defeat a network. So what is in fact implied here is that shadow warfare results from the state mimicking its enemies. So um, we argue, looking back to these genres, we argue to, to look at a more fundamental underlying um, um, answer to the question, which is related to political economy. So although offering important insights into the design of warfare, the three perspectives or the three genres just mentioned overlook more fundamental and classic questions of war. How war is an alternative system of profit, power and protection. Wars are produced. They are made to happen by a diverse and complicated set of actors who may well be achieving their objectives in the midst of what may like, look like failure and breakdown. So the changing nature of interventionist warfare cannot be attributed to reactive impulses and strategies alone. Rather, war fatigue, remote technology and enemy networks provide additional conditions of possibility for the spatial and temporal reconfiguration of war. Now, paying tribute to Zygmunt Bauman's liquidity vocabulary and Derek Gregory's notion of everywhere war, we propose to use the term liquid warfare in highlighting how conventional ties between war, space, and time have become undone, and to conceptualize certain forms of remote warfare as liquid warfare. So liquid warfare, then, is about flexible, open-ended, pop-up military interventions supported by remote technology and reliance on local partnerships and private contractors, through which coalitions of parties, assemblages, we call them, aim to promote and protect interests. So liquid warfare is this temporally open-ended and eventful, as well as spatially dispersed and mobile. So what is fundamental to this type of warfare, in that is how in contrast to the era of imperialist and colonial rule, and also Cold War rule, Control over territory and control over population is no longer the stake of the global power struggle. The power of the state today depends upon its credit ratings, its corporate capacity and its global market shares, not on the capture of territory. So control over resources is, of course, in the world of today, of key importance, but um, access is arranged through free trade regimes, leasing, contracting, large-scale land purchases, in, in Africa and Latin America, for instance, forestry permits and accumulation by conservation, rather than territorial conquest. So with the wink of von Clausewitz, Sigmund Baumann already in 2000 stated that today's wars look like the promotion of global free trades by other means. And the retort collective um, coined this military neoliberalism, a useful shorthand for the increasing military means whereby the state seeks to make the world safe for global capital. And this is why states such as the US, but also increasingly countries like France, exercise a very different form of control, something that they call shaping the security environment. And what we notice for the case of AFRICOM is that the major technique of intervention is not just the rejection of geopolitical territorial confinement, but also the rejection of biopolitical notions of controlling the life and death of populations. So um, what we see, um, and also the related and cumbersome responsibilities and cost of order and nation building. So what we see instead is um, 
a notion of, of shaping that is at its core um, um, of this new form of interventionism. Um, and that is the monitoring, disrupting, and containment of perceived risks and dangers through forward posture and forward presence. And this is already something that was coined by the uh, Department of Defense in 1997, but was only basically actively rolled out after 2008. So the DOD calls this shaping the international security environment um, as a way that, you know, to promote and protect U.S. national interest uh, through all kinds of partnerships. So for the sake of brevity, I keep it short. But you can see here that this is, is clearly thought through as, as, as working through partnership and through having this forward presence. So um, we propose to include these temporal and spatial dimensions in the way we define liquid warfare as a way of military interventionism that shuns direct control over territory and populations and its cumbersome order building and order maintaining responsibilities, focusing instead on, on shaping, this notion of shaping. Um, for, um, and through this, you know, the ability to disrupt and monitor perceived risks and dangers and uh, to promote interest. So moving away from a geocentric to a much more target and much more mobile uh, conceptualization of war. And for our next research project, we aim to explore what economic interests, particularly economic interests, are promoted and protected through this shaping and flesh out this notion of military neoliberalism uh, more concretely, empirically, and theoretically. So uh, to conclude, um, although risk, technology, and enemy networks do play a role, we understand the shift to liquid warfare as grounded in the political economy of late modernity in which control over territory or population has ceased to be the stake of the power struggle and, and how we now move to a more cynical uh, form of intervention through this notion of shaping. So, thanks a lot. Good morning. Uh, so, first of all, thank you very much for uh, uh, inviting me to this conference and I will start by saying that I'm not usually at the front of the conference. Um, I work on Islamic law which means that when I go to mainstream conferences I'm usually at the end of the conferences so I am going to enjoy this. Uh, I feel a bit mainstream right now, you know, a bit like fashionable so this is my moment. <laughs> so basically when I talk to Tom the idea was um, to shape up something that's like theoretical at the beginning and as I just heard your paper, my paper fits right after you. Uh, because I'm going to speak about the decolonization on the debate of remote warfare, looking at the case of Islam. So um, I'm going to engage with this non-Western experience of remote warfare. Why Islam? Well, I have my expertise in Islam, but also because uh, most of the conflicts today are taking place in Muslim countries, and they involve, or they involve, so-called uh, Muslim armed state actors. So uh, what I'm going to present today is about the mostly mainstream view on remote warfare, and then I will then show, uh, explain what the extremist uh, perspective is on remote warfare. So I will mainly engage with technology. Uh, I will leave aside everything that's like cybersecurity, military training for private contractors, although this would require another presentation because Islamic would have different perspective on those different topics. Um, so my argument is the following, uh, innovation is not prohibited in Islam, so basically from a mainstream perspective, there is no problem with remote warfare as far as technology is concerned. So why am I here? Because actually there is another narrative that has developed, 
which is an extremist narrative, and that's where we start having a problem with remote, remote warfare. The issue is that the extremists have taken the Muslim narrative on warfare and remote warfare, twisted it, distorted it, and have also copycatted what is being done by us when we practice remote warfare. Technology in such circumstances becomes basically an aggravating factor that actually helps those extremists shifting the Muslim narrative of war and the Muslim way of war. So I've got very little time to take you through a lot of Islamic stuff, uh, so I'll do my best. So basically, there is a regulation of warfare in Islamic law. And the mainstream perspective is that one that's called defensive jihad al-Qaeda. The jihad al-Qaeda is basically the jihad when we go to war. There are different forms of jihad that I won't be speaking about today. And so normally, a fair war is when we go and defend ourselves. So it's in the Quran. We've got the principle of self-defense. We are allowed to go to war to protect Islam or to defend the oppressed Muslims. Those are the only times when we are allowed to engage with defensive warfare. And when we do this, there are principles in the Quran in what we call the Sunnah, which is what the Prophet said and what the Prophet did. And so we must wage war in the way of Allah, meaning we need to comply in the Quran and the Sunnah. A very good example of this is the war between Iraq and Iran in the 80s, where Iran actually complied with those standards. Uh, but what has been happening through the centuries, especially from the Middle Age, is that classicists and neoclassicists, followed by modernists, have developed another narrative of warfare in Islam, and that's the one we're interested in today. So basically, there is now the idea that you are allowed and that you must take, um, you must actually engage with the rest of the world to propagate Islam by this word. So you must basically have an aggressive form of jihad al-Qaeda. You must propagate Islam through violence. And this is the narrative that the armed non-state actors around the world that we face have embraced and that they are using to feed their engagement with remote warfare. So they also engage with the mainstream narrative of Islam, they just twist it. An example of this is normally when you enter a territory during war where you have non-Muslims, you need to give them the opportunity to convert to Islam, and if they don't want to convert to Islam, they need to pay the, they need to pay the jizya, which is a tax, and in exchange of that tax, they will be protected. What ISIL did when it arrived in Iraq, and especially we have reports from the Sinjar area, they didn't necessarily always offer that option, or they would offer that option of the jizya, but after, they would force people to convert to Islam. And that is actually against the Quran, because the Quran says there is no compulsion in religion. You cannot force someone to convert. So we have concrete examples in the practice of these extremist groups as to how they take mainstream Islamic rules, which is you pay the jizya, but then they twist it to match a specific agenda, which was that they actually wanted people to convert. And I'm going to come back to this later to show you how it's having an impact on remote warfare. Another ground rule that we need to be aware of in Islam is the permissible use of force. So force is actually allowed, but we must show restraint, we call sabr, which is patience in Islam which means that no matter what you do, you need to do it with restraint. It's the use that you're going to make of force that's being monitored. 
So what happens in mainstream remote warfare theory of Islam is that you are allowed to do remote warfare, and we'll see in a minute the technology side, but it's the way you're going to do it that is being checked. Alright? And so we know that from the Quran and from the Hadith that we need to show restraint. So how does that work with our remote warfare and the technology bit? So obviously the Quran didn't plan for remote warfare, didn't plan for physical presence like footprint operation, all that is not in the Quran, I can tell you. But there is a lot about um, technology in the Quran. So we have one hadith in particular, and a hadith is a story about the Prophet that traveled through the centuries. And in this story, what we have is the Prophet Muhammad who came across people doing artificial pollination of palm tree, and he was quite horrible about twisting nature. And he said so, he said, I actually prohibit you to do that scientific experiment. The outcome was that the harvest was very poor the year after, and that's when the Prophet actually backtracked and said, well, actually, you know, I don't know that much about science. You know what, I'll take care of religious affairs, and you, in the secular world, you take care of religious affairs. So from stories like this, we actually know that Islam has no issue engaging with technology, and this is basically one of the hadith, one of the little stories that we would use to explain why actually remote warfare is allowed in Islam. So in general, I don't have the time to go into the details, there's no obstacle to arms sales in Islam, no problem with wargaming, UAVs, and others. But we will monitor the way it is done, the way it's being used, and we must apply patient Sabbath restraint. For example, it's haram, it's prohibited to sell weapons to someone who will use it illegitimately. That's the kind of rule that we work with in remote warfare. We also need to respect principles such as the distinction between combatants and civilians. So in Islam, one of the cornerstones is the distinction between civilian and combatants. So basically, the debate that we are going to have here in the next 48 hours are exactly the same that you would have in Islam, in the mainstream perspective. The Islamist extremist theory, though, has a different approach to remote warfare. So we started noticing in 2016, oh wow, ISIL is actually using drones. Well, yeah, nothing stops them. I've just told you that it's perfectly legitimate and legal for them to do so. But the way they use it is going to be distorted from the expectations. So I was giving you the example earlier of the Jizya. Here is another example of how they twist um, Islamic law. Here looking at sexual slavery. And they put together different interpretation about slavery in the Quran, about sexuality and gender, take the most conservative interpretation, and that's how ISIL justified actually having sexual slavery in Iraq. Okay? They do the same thing with remote warfare. Technology is allowed, therefore, we twist it to fit our agenda, and this is where we start looking at what the other side is doing and how they are using it without checking whether that matched the ethics of Islam. And I'm going to explain this in a minute. So basically, the situation we are in today is that the Islamist extremists, sorry for the spelling mistake there, the Islamist extremist doctrine has evolved to become sort of a toolbox where the extremists go in and take whatever rule they want and twist it 
to serve their own agenda. That has an impact on their rules of engagement and on mainstream Islamic principles. And the consequence we've noted is that civilians are more and more victims of the way those extremists practice warfare. The argument is the, the, the following. Well, those civilians are actually not good civilians. They're not, even if they're Muslims, they won't be good Muslims. We call them kafirs, bad believers, basically, which makes them legitimate targets. So we have in this Islamic narrative that come from the 16th century, that sort of dehumanization that's taking place, and you're going to add another layer on this, that's the dehumanization through technology that is operated with uh, remote warfare. So they basically use <coughs> two elements of dehumanization to basically justify their deeds. So two issues that we have here. Issue number one, the way we approach remote warfare in terms of strategy, tactics, doctrine, will have an impact on the Islamist extremist doctrine. So it feeds their narrative on an aggressive jihad. They look at what we do, they look at how we justify it, and they then put it into, under their Islamic umbrella. So that raises a lot of issue in terms of ethics of warfare. We have a shift here. It's not just us having this shift of ethics, it's also those extremists having this shift of ethics going even more extreme. As a result, they're turning civilians into targets. Why? Because basically, with remote warfare, you have less food on the ground, you have less targets to put on a show. Yet, these groups are all about stratcom. They're all about applying Islamic principles that, they, that they've distorted to show that they are stronger than anyone else, to show that their Islamic interpretation is better than anyone else. Since they don't have the boots on the ground to put on a show, they turn towards the civilians and they start killing the civilians to do their stratcom. Yeah, okay, so um, I wanted to go to the decolonizing uh, remote warfare more in detail, looking at also the reaction of Muslim people, but it's basically, I, don't, I won't do this because I'm running out of time, but that's basically what you covered in your paper, Yoli and Lawrence, so I don't really need to go back to this. So basically, the question that we need to ask ourselves is, is this a problem just about Islam and interpretation? Is this something that Muslims need to deal with? Like, oh, this has extremist interpretation, just provide new interpretation? Or should we not also question the way we practice remote warfare? So basically, are we not indirectly responsible for that shift in ethics? Are we not actually pushing extremists to the extreme? And in terms of lesson learned, what we can see, and we are seeing it, for example, in Afghanistan, is that civilians have been the first victim of this. So we need to think, in terms of mitigating the impact of civilian, on civilians, not just from our perspective, how we, do we improve our strikes, but also when we strike and when we behave and when we establish our doctrines and tactics, what impact is it going to have on the, the extremists and how will they actually retaliate in return? We also need in my field to start thinking about other issues such as terrorist drone attacks, suicide drones, chemical drone attacks, 
that would be in blunt principles, uh, in blunt violation of Islamic principles, um, humanitarian principles. So we need to start thinking about this as well. Thank you very much. Sorry it was so quick. Thank you. Okay, now Paul, you're up. Thank you. Um, I looked forward to this conference very much, uh, but I have reservations about the title. And I, I think remote warfare is a fascinating subject with a terrible title. Um, and it's, it's, it's worth looking at. It's in, intrinsically controversial. I think you are all drawn here probably for different reasons to, to make sense of this un, ambiguous category. Um, and the, reason, the, the positions you will take on it are not randomly generated. I, I'm not going to say you're, you're all determined and by your professions and backgrounds and ethnicities. There is some human agency, but one notices remarkable uh, similarities in the way that different gr groups behave or, or don't uh, behave when confronted with this question. What is it and what should we think about it? Well, I think it's not warfare. It's not best described as warfare. Um, it, it, it lacks most of the uh, aspects of war that we, we in the West talk about. I, I think if you are in the campaign theatres, it does feel like war, but for the, for the decision makers in uh, the West, it isn't. And we, we mistake some of the choices and difficulties if we call it that. Um, and it certainly doesn't fit what lawyers like, which is a tidy binary between Pax and Bellum. Um, it, it, it's in between, and there, there are a lot of the difficulties. And lawyers tend to hate that, which I think is, a, is one of the factors we, we will be confronted with. And it isn't remote. I mean, where, where is remote anymore? The, um, the French, and I'll talk a bit about the French, certainly do not feel what's going on in the Sahel is remote to them. Um, and and it, these places are getting less remote every, every day. Um, remember, distance died sometime at the end of the 20th century. Uh, and it's not new. There have been uh, lots of uh, similar um, events, many of which shaped the, the world after 1945. Um, the discrete interventions, um, the, the British overrepresented, but the Americans and the French also active. Um, and uh, there are you. you there are, there are obvious things that people will have been aware of. Um, inherent resolve is, is like footprint. Operation Barken, I'll talk about, not much discussed outside France. Um, and the, the fascinating examples of what's been going on in T Tunisia behind the scenes, because you don't want to talk about the, the, the discrete assistance you're giving to the Tunisians to resist destabilization and attacks next door from Libya. It, it's bad news for the Tunisian government to admit that... that um, Scan Eagles and American Special Forces have helped repel and ambush uh, Libyan terrorists. So I think what we should be talking about are ultra-light footprint grey zone interventions. I haven't found a better acronym yet. It's not, it's not catchy. But it's, it's all those things. It's um, many of which have been mentioned. I quite like the term liquid war. This dissolves into, into liquid war. Um, uh, and it, it comes out of a particular historical conjunction, the, the disappointments and failures of, of big transformative nation building. We're never going to do that again. Uh, but that means it is, um, ref it, at best, it is slightly reformative. It, it cannot be transformative. If, if we send uh, 
few discrete special forces protected by drones overhead, it isn't going to change the way of life or improve the governance of the places we're going into, and we, we no longer pretend that. When I was doing post-conflict reconstruction, uh, we were all about um, long-term transformations in, in governments and, and all those lines of operation, justice, law and order, education, all of those things which, which would make life better for people so they would want to choose governments that the West supported. Well, we don't seem to do that anymore. Um, so this creates apprehensions. Uh, do you? Does it? Is it? Is it stupid securitization? Is it merely superficial? Are we actually going to be good at this? Uh, our, our operational histories are not very, are not very encouraging that we can culturally learn how to do how to do it. Will will we uh, underfund and un, un, uh, lack interest in the in, in supposedly associated civilian development activities? Killing people, does that turn them against us if we do it in tastelessly large numbers? Um, and does it just, by going in and helping uh, not very good regimes, do we merely keep them in power, which is on the whole a bad thing? Uh, some, some of them should fall. And do we expose our own governments to reputational damage and our service people to possible legal uh, consequence if we are associated with um, people committing war crimes in their, in their, in their own factional areas or, or countries? So lots of apprehensions which keep coming up. And there's a whole question about opacity. Uh, are you entitled to keep this stuff quiet? How discreet can you be in your, in your, in your own parliament? And I know some people feel passionately about that. I think that uh, there are reasons for it, that there is a contradiction between conducting operations in the twilight to assist and fight alongside people who desperately do not want that connection to be revealed. If, if you do that, you, you um, undercut many of the purposes of the uh, involvement. And at some point, you may want to switch support from one faction to another uh, and not have to talk about it. You don't want to admit you, you've, you've gone there because then it makes it harder to pull out if you find you've made a mistake, if you officially confirm you were, you were ever there. And you maybe provoke um, other regional rivals to, to take fiercer action than they, are, they otherwise would if, the, if, if this remains unacknowledged and, and twilight. So I think there, there is a whole set of, of arguments which I, I have much enjoyed stating um, in, in the course of the remote control project's work. But also it's worth remembering this is a Western style and it isn't the only thing that's happening in, 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 in the third world. There's, there's certainly a jihadi international interventionary st style which has got considerable resources and, gro and growing expertise. There's a, there's a very evident, rather loud and high explosive Russian style. The Chinese are moving in different ways, notably through debt, debt traps. And the interestingly hyperactive UAE and, um, and, and, and the Egyptians, when they've got time from their own internal troubles, are also contributing special forces, and increasingly drone strikes. There are, being dro there are drone strikes that nobody knows who did that. Um, uh, for the first time, the Americans are saying, well, we didn't do that, and nobody else is saying, uh, we did it. Even though it's hitting and killing jihadis that nobody much cares about, it's still inconvenient to talk about. That's happening in Libya. So Libya was an instructive example, a place that you really did not want to get taken over by a violent extremist operation. The idea of having a, a vilayet of Islamic State on the Mediterranean was pretty distasteful, but what was to be done about it? Um, 
particularly uh, in relation to what, what was represented. This is some kind of an absolute enemy, and, and, uh, the, 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 and, and a force that you, you really do not want to take over. It, it, it represents a negation of everything we say we, we would like to flourish in the rest of the world. Um, and it's complicated by fears about migrants, uh, all, all the paranoia of that. Uh, created. So we get the new light footprint configuration, the drones, the special forces. Remember, it's special forces accelerating and assisting drones, as, as targeting and, and, and intelligence. Um, and you, there is a swarming in this. The li liquid is good, but liquids can flow very fast, and this, this flowed very fast. And it's semi-discreet. That American special forces team on the left had to go home when they were photographed, but they sneaked in uh, a few weeks later. And, and over on the right, at the bottom right, we have British Special Forces who are never there, we never talk about, except when it's convenient to reveal uh, dexterous use of jab Javelin anti-tank missiles to, to hit a uh, vehicle-borne IED, and it's, it's good publicity. So um, discretion when you want it. And all these drones, if we talk about drones, let's remember there's a whole ecology of drones down to squad level. We will not fight wars in future without, without drones uh, and organic support. So the idea of going to war without drones is becoming absurd. So drones, American carrier air power, are used. Uh, Certe is retaken. Uh, there isn't, uh, you know, the emergency on the Mediterranean is averted. The, the town is completely destroyed. There are no plans to rebuild it. It can't be uh, reformed. But it, it was stopped. It was retaken and couldn't have been without the... The, the liquid war spurt coming in to, to deal with what the locals could not have retaken. Uh, dense urbanism plus fanatical defenders means you cannot take, retake these towns. And that's been true in, in other, pla other places, um, Mosul, etc. Uh, now, uh, the problem is with these are being done with, in, in, these choices being made with incommensurable outcomes many counterfactuals, and we are involved in a murderous and conjectural series of choices, inescapably. There's, there's no good way out of this, and all the choices we take will lead to quite different mixes of, of outcomes to different, different groups. If you're a Yazidi, there are different consequences to, to being a Sunni, to being a Bedouin, to being a Tuareg, um, and uh, we don't quite know what they will be, but the outlines of those can be seen. And if you refrain from action, that's going to have its own consequences, which won't generally be very nice, um, but maybe better than others. And what we don't have is a kind of macro proportionality. Um, there will be some civilian deaths, inevitably, however we try and minimize them. Will that be better than letting uh, jihadis succeed? Um, I, I don't hear answers to that question. Um, the French, who are less worried for cultural reasons about doing this, possibly because of the Bataclan, are openly involved in Operation Barken, and that's worth paying attention to because that's the West coming together. AFRICOM, like the sort of tank, the gravity tank of liquid war, is, is uh, ready to set up uh, and is continually running ultralight footprint interventions all over Africa with spreading drone bases. But it's, do, it's having to do this in this, you know, that, the famous slide from Afghanistan, if we could understand this, we'd win the war. It's actually more complicated, of course, than that, because it, it, that needed to take in Pakistan, and it now needs to take into the West. And we don't actually know how all those feedbacks work. But nonetheless, we have to take decisions. And there is this new factor, algorithmic warfare. Um, how is that going to play in? Is it a good thing, or is it horrible? Uh, we don't even know whether it's going to work yet. But it is being introduced in Africa. 
and the, the Pentagon is, is very proud of it. So we have interminable disagreements because we have systematically different um, forms of life in which we, we look at the, this. If, if, we can, if you are a critical IR theorist, I think you're not going to have the same attitude to this as is if you're an instructor at a staff college. It's, it's, just, it's just not possible. You will think about this, uh, you will see a different thing in, in, in different terms. There will be national security arguments and humanitarian solidarity arguments which can be worked through. And uh, you get people in uh, a threatened secular Pakistani physicist who, who likes drones and felt reluctantly this is the only thing to do. Um, the saintly Obama saying it was actually the America was going to go on bombing in Yemen while it makes Americans safe to coming. Um, and there will be oppositional grounds for many of them deriving from Foucault, I think, and some from Heidegger on, on opposing uh, drones, some from Marx, I think. Uh, so although you, I think if we had time for you to look at this, you would see that you might resonate to different, different uh, uh, aspects of, of, of that package. And we have some very relevant UK um, attitudinal views. You know, we are not entitled to do this because we're not good. We, we are exploitative if we do things in the third world. Um, Mr. Corbyn is a distinguished hater of drones and all that goes with them. Um, and here, electoral politics gets involved. If you, get, you may get elected uh, by pushing certain things, you may want to minimize them. Um, uh, we're never now, apparently, if, if he gets elected, ever going to go into a, a war which cannot be guaranteed to be won, despite the complexities I've talked about. Now, finally, that's the future, I think. Great power competition is going to drive more, more and more high-tech. That will be applied in interventionary scenarios. There won't be improvements in the difficult social and human processes of um, uh, stabilization or, or, or nation building. Um, so they, there will continue to be these interventions. Um, we, will, we, to a lesser extent, the third world populations will get habituated to them. But it could go wrong if, if they are seen to be distastefully involved in, in international, greedy international competition, a new scramble for Africa. And radical domestic changes in the UK and maybe in Europe and less likely in America are the most likely ways in which this inevitable tide will be less inevitable. Thank you. So first of all, I'd like to say a big thank you for everyone uh, to come in today. I think me and Abigail spoke about this idea uh, with Rubik about over 18 months ago, so it's been lots of work, but I'm glad and really hope you enjoy the next two days. So essentially what I want to do today is to kind of bring this panel together almost and start teasing out essentially what remote, remote, sorry, what remote warfare is and looking at some of the different theoretical ways in which we can explain uh, its use. It's really interesting having heard the first three panels to look at the debates on not only what remote warfare is, but whether there's actually any analytical um, contribution of the concept. And it's interesting to see how, when we look at um, its history, it's evolved over time. So essentially, when we look at the existing literature, uh, as we all know, the sort of contemporary turn towards remote warfare has been explained as a consequence of a variety of different things. So a change in the social, political context, ge geographies, and technologies of war. Others, as we know, have focused more on changes within the US and UK, which have been perceived to have make, 
the use of remote warfare more attractive. But just building on what Paul uh, was saying there, I think interestingly, you know, when we think about some of the narratives around around remote warfare, that it's new and also essentially that it was made in America or somewhat problematic, when we look at the larger history of practices of Anglo-American intervention in the global south. So what I'm presenting today forms part of what I hope will be a larger postdoctoral project which looks at these histories. Um, it's very much a work in progress, so please don't be too harsh on it. But nevertheless, I do think the concept of empire, as I'll go on to discuss, can tell us a lot about not just what uh, remoteness and war is, but why the United States has used uh, these practices. Before going on, though, I think particularly after the recent controversies following the publication of the case for colonialism in Third World Quarterly, I just want to make very clear that this paper isn't um, some sort of attempt to defend or, as happened in some circles after 9-11, actively cheered, cheerlead for an American empire. As Michael Cox has previously argued, you don't have to be a neoconservative or an apologist for empire to take the concept seriously. It can contribute quite significantly, I would say, to understanding contemporary American foreign and security policy. In particular, as Alejandro Carlos has argued, um, empires are essentially all about the study of specific expressions of power. Barnett and Duvel, who, as the international relations scholars will know, have in many ways written the seminal text on power and international relations within the last decade, understand the American empire debate in similar terms. And therefore, I would argue that using the concept of empire can help us examine the relationship between remote warfare and the broader geographies and structures of American power. More than that, because empire is concerned with the mutual constitution of relationships between states in the global north and the global south, it can help shed light on how and why remote warfare has been used as a consequence of resistance in the periphery, right? It's interesting to look at the relationship between the debates we're having on remote warfare now after Iraq and similar debates that emerged in the United States after Vietnam. So with that in mind, there's essentially two things I want to do. The first in, is to kind of look at and start conceptualising what, what remote warfare is and how it's been studied. And then in the second part, apply the concept of empire to see whether there's anything it can say about why and where remote warfare has been used. So, as we sort of know, over the last decade, there's been much debate sort of about remote warfare, but less specifically on what it actually is. It's a very elastic term in the sense that it's often used, but it's not regularly defined. As Emily and Abigail have very thoughtfully pointed out in their defining, in the introduction story to the Defining Remote Warfare series, it's often a term uh, which has been studied on the assumption that you know it when you see it. It's almost a connoisseur model and texture to it. As we know, in all social sciences, there's a trade-off between parsimony and generalizable explanations. But nevertheless, I would say, and Paul has started to tease out, remote warfare's current elasticity does present analytical problems for those looking to use the concept. In particular, as the first paper kind of alluded to, is remote warfare a conceptual umbrella which encompasses different theoretically informed explanations for modern warfare, so liquid warfare, surrogate warfare, vicarious warfare, to name just a few, or is it something distinct? In particular, we see a conflation with remote warfare and the light footprint approach. This is despite some having um, conceptualised light footprint approaches separately. 
So I don't have the answers for these conceptual slippages today, but over the next day, next two days, it will be interesting to see whether and how we conceive and shape uh, the concept of remote warfare. Because interestingly, as we know, it's not a concept that tends to be used by policymakers. It's one many ways that it's been studied and emerged externally of that. So there is a degree of malleability here. Um, but what can be said with greater confidence is that when we look at the etymology, which I found out researching this paper as the history of words, the concept of remote warfare is relatively recent, right? So in particular, it's tied to Obama's presidency and the use of drones. So research in this paper, I was trying to find the first example of the specific label remote warfare. And from what I could find, and it'd be interesting to hear whether anyone had previous examples, is from this piece by Kimberly Chase, who was a freelance journalist in uh, May 2009. And why this is important, as we know, there's kind of been a conflation between remote warfare, which I understand as a set of practices, and remote controlled warfare, a set of technologies. When we look at why and how remote warfare has been studied and why there is a quite widespread perception that it's something new, it's because, in my mind, the concept traditionally has been tied quite closely to the use of drones. However, what we see over the last five or so years is this sort of being decoupled, right? The study of remote warfare has decoupled from the study of remote control warfare, which raises the question of, well, what is or has remote warfare been understood to be? So I think when we try to understand its core logic, to paraphrase Lord Ismay, NATO's first Secretary General, particularly in the context of the United States, it can broadly be understood as an attempt to keep the American army out, local partners in, and the costs of intervention down. Now, we may contest this exact wording, but when we look at broadly, broad currents in the literature, this has sort of been the direction of travel. Um, and this, as I said, has been the predominant way in which remoteness has been studied in warfare, this effort to um, great, create a greater political and physical distance between the intervening power and where they're intervening, essentially. Um, so, as I said, American policymakers are argued to have been able to have drawn from a toolbox of different instruments, and there's been somewhat of a pick-and-a-mix approach to how these have been configured in different articles. So some of the different tools that have been mentioned are manned and unmanned aircraft, precision-guided munitions, cyber, intelligence agencies, special operation forces, private military contractors, and security force assistants. So when you sort of bring those all together, uh, the majority of these work by, with, and through partners, uh, whether these be indigenous security forces, whether these be security forces within the wider region, or with U.S. counterterrorism counter operations in the Sahel, states from outside uh, of the region. And when we think about the drivers and characteristics of remote warfare, again, as Abigail and Emily have previously mentioned, it's often been what's left when you go through all the restrictions that you have, in the sense that it's a means of square and perceived circle, a practice often of perceived necessity rather than of deliberate choice. And why this is important is because, as we've started to discuss today, exactly how remote practices of warfare have been conf configured vary and have often been tailored to reflect both political sensitivities within the United States, but also within the states in which intervention has occurred. And in this regard, I think it's perhaps more appropriate to think about remote approaches to warfare rather than remote warfare singular. And I think when we 
look at the debate around remote warfare moving forward, more work needs to be done to explain why different configurations have been used at different times and in different states. Um, that, and this also builds on the point that Paul made, that there are different ways of remote warfare, I would argue. The British way of remote warfare is different, perhaps, from the American way of remote warfare, which is different from the French way of the remote warfare. And in terms of areas of future study, these um, discrepancies are perhaps worth exploring in more detail. So this, as I said, has been a quick survey of the literature. How am I doing? Um, so, and that's kind of what remote warfare is, but I would argue this is quite a restrictive way for understanding what is remote about remote warfare. Well, I think we can also start to understand uh, the remoteness as something uh, that's done over there rather than at here. And that's why the concept of empire can begin to be useful. So very quickly, as we know, the meaning and usage of empire has shifted over time, and this needs to be historicalized within the particular period one is studying. It can, nevertheless, broadly be defined as a hierarchical set of social and material relations in which a core, through the use or threat of coercion, exercises power and authority over a periphery. Uh, you may ask, well, how does empire differ from hegemony? Um, I would argue, essentially, to give you the Sparknote version, that hegemonic relationships are largely consensual, often a highly negotiated process embedded through international institutions. In contrast, the threat or use of coercion is far more pronounced in empires, and the imperial power is recognised to have a greater capacity to impose its economic and political preferences. So you may ask, what does this mean for remote warfare? I think when we go through the list of states where remote warfare has been used or studied, so Iraq, Somalia, Yemen, Pakistan, Mali, these are all fragile states in the global south. And it's interesting to look at where remote warfare has been used. Uh, and as I said, just because I'm running out of time, I have to go through this quite quickly. There is an argument to be made that it's something that's done over there, as I said, in the global south, rather than something that's done over here. So when we think about what, rem what is remote about remote warfare, as I said, it's something that tends to be restricted um, to the global south which then very quickly again comes back to why the concept of empire can be useful for explaining uh, the use of remote warfare. So as we all know, and William Appleman Williams once argued, one of the sort of central themes of American historiography is that there is no, em there is no American empire. Um, but this argument only really holds water if we transpose the old European models of imperialism to the United States. As is widely accepted in the international relations literature, empires can be both formal, where a core directly exercises its influence over territory and people, or informal, where a core indirectly does this through states or local collaborators. So as open-door scholars of American foreign policy have argued, the, Amer the United States has sought to extend the American system throughout the world without the embarrassment of, or inefficiency of traditional colonialism. So essentially what I'm getting at here is that remote warfare, um, am I out of time? Um, remote warfare, we can essentially understand its use um, as a sort of reflection of the limits of American power and also somewhat paradoxically an attempt to sort of resolve them. Um, when we think about why remote warfare has been used essentially because the American empire has been an empire that's worked through states and collaborators that limits what it can do. It can't work and directly control territory, therefore it needs to work through partners. Um, and this presents a particularly acute challenge for American policymakers. Um, 
just because I'm out of time, we're in this there, but I'm sure hopefully there'll be some questions where I can explain that a bit more thoroughly. So. <laughs>